0: This is Dr. Todd Watson. We're here for another ArborPod interview. And uh, today I have with me Mr. Donald Blair. And I could probably spend most of our time giving an introduction of him, uh, since he's probably a person that needs no introduction. But he has been uh, uh, on the board of uh, ISA. He's been past president of the Mid-Atlantic and Western chapter. He helped co-found the ITCC. Uh, He's the author of uh, Arborist Equipment. He was the first recipient of the award for exceptional contribution in practical culture So I'll just generally say somebody that knows a little something about trees and, uh, and has made a great contribution to ISA. So welcome, thanks for being here.
1: Well, thank you very much, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh,
0: the title of this interview is uh, Moonlighting at Monticello with the subtitle, Mr. Jefferson's Tulip, a popular legend. So, interesting title, what's the story behind uh, Moonlighting in Monticello?
1: Well, <clears throat> considering the fact that uh, this podcast goes out to the 22,000, it is available to the 22,000 ISA members all over the world, it should probably explain that uh, Thomas Jefferson was the author of the American Declaration of Independence in 1776, and that he was, I think, the third President of the United States, and his home was uh, a place that he called Monticello, which was a little mountain, I think. And it's on the back of the uh, older American Nichols. And he is uh, one of the four faces that's carved onto um, the granite uh, mountain called Mount Rushmore. So uh, Thomas Jefferson is, is one of our most revered founding fathers, along with George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. <clears throat> there was a uh, enormous uh, liriodendron tulipifera, commonly known as a tulip poplar, that grew uh, very close to the house. It was uh, 88 inches in diameter, which is seven foot four in, in uh, inches and a little more than two meters in metric. It was 115 feet tall, and it um, was hollow, (laughs) from uh, almost the very top all the way to the ground. But that isn't why we took it down. I'd been the uh, consultant on the structural integrity of that tree since 1997. And there'd been some concerns about whether or not the tree was safe to stand over such an important structure. Monticello was the only internationally registered um, landscape, well, uh, land, uh, architectural landmark in the United States. So it's an extremely um, unusual, unique, and and uh, significant home. So having a tree cleave through it like a um, like a uh, meat cleaver would not be a good thing for anybody. Probably not. <clears throat> the uh, reason why this story is called Moonlighting at Monticello is when it came time to remove it in June of 1920, <laughs> in June of 2008, the uh, foundation, the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, had one special request for us not to do the job during their normal hours of operation when they were giving tours because if we were taking the tree down they wouldn't feel that they could give those tours and but things are tight for everybody they didn't want to disrupt the flow of the the tours and the maintenance and they sure didn't want to give up the income the revenue from (laughs) from some tours so the original thought of uh, bartlett tree expert is the firm that contracted to do the removal. I was the consultant, and the deal was made between Bartlett and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. But the foreman uh, and division safety manager, Rob Springer, was thinking conventionally. Well, we can start 5.30 or 6. It's summertime. We can work till 9 o'clock at night. And then we can get in about 6 AM and work till 10. But it's going to take a week of doing this. And it was going to tie a 90 ton crane that they were renting uh, with operators for a week, which was going to be very expensive. And one of the most important uh, factors to consider when you're planning a job that involves more than just your your people is to have all concerned parties involved in the planning phases so the the crane company representatives were on the job site while a work plan was being developed several days before this was to take place, and Rob mentioned his work schedule, and crane operators said, "Well, you know, we have a lot of experience in working under uh, industrial lights. You know, this place can be lit up like a ballpark at night, and we could probably do it in two days." So now there was another element of of uh, another concept brought in by an outside person with different experience so that changed the play of the job completely they uh, Bartlett rented five big generator powered work lights that came up the night before the job and aimed them and set them and moved them until they were satisfied that all the glare was was uh, and the shadows had been cancelled out by the other lights and it was uh, uh, The time of year where there was a full moon, and we started working at six o'clock at night, and we worked till six a.m. And we, I've got a beautiful photograph of the tree in the with a crane in the foreground, the tree in the background with the moon (laughs) at the back end. And when I was trying to think of a title for this, yeah, I had ran through a number of titles that really didn't hit me, and then I, I saw that picture. I thought moonlighting. (laughs) <laughs> we are truly moonlighting so, and again for people out of the United States not familiar with that uh, slang expression in uh, in this country at least if you're moonlighting it means that you're doing another job other than your regular job and uh, you know sometimes it's not looked upon with favor by the employers <laughs> but uh, That's how it got the title, Moonlighting. Now, the other tagline, the poplar legend, was the issue as to whether or not this large, iconic, magnificent tree had actually indeed, in fact been planted by Thomas Jefferson. And all the time that it was alive and flourishing, there was a a real desire on behalf of everyone associated with Monticello to be able to say, yes, Mr. Jefferson planted that tree. Facts didn't support that. There was enough research and archives and things that couldn't completely rule out the fact definitively. But from an arborist's report in their files dated May 1926, I was able to use a very qualified arborist's report as a baseline for how big the tree was in 1926, the condition that it was, and how old he thought it was at that time. And He estimated 65 years. And that took the tree back to 1861. Uh, Mr. Jefferson had died 37 years prior to that.
0: If I remember right, he died on July 4th. my knowledge of history is he, correct. So. He did
1: within hours of John Quincy Adams.
0: Yes, that's right. That's another interesting tidbit. Well, it's obviously a unique tree, and in a unique historic uh, environment. What other did you? Were there other things that were unique with the removal? Of course, obviously in the in the middle of the night, and uh, in a in a massive effort. But uh, for a large a tree this large and with a lot of decay in it. Did you encounter any other unique uh, challenges with this?
1: <clears throat> well, yes, one was the logistics of uh, being able to get the, you know, we had quite a bit of equipment involved. There was an aerial lift that would give the, um, you know, the, the climber access to the trunk once he'd worked his self, it, it worked his way down uh, to the point to where an aerial lift would be effective. There was a, uh, a 90-ton crane with 145 feet of stick and the crane had to take precedence over where it went in order for the operator to be able to see what he needed to see to keep, uh, you know, to keep the picks safe. And then there had to be a truck and chipper to dispose of the uh, of the brush, and they needed uh, a mechanical loader to uh, deal with the uh, the limb wood. So a lot of effort went into designing a work zone that was safe, secure, and contributed to the efficient flow of the job. That was one challenge. Another challenge was the fact there was a uh, virtual piano network of cables in that tree, which meant that we had to get the the the, uh, the limb structure above the cables. And we, we could get them down to the to the cables and we were very interested in seeing how the cables reacted to the lessening of that weight. If the cables went slack as we took the weight off, there was less concern that there'd be a collapse when the cables were cut. So that that had the uh, the, the removal had to be planned around the location of the cables, and we had to have contingencies in mind to cope with. However, the uh, uh, the tension on the on the cables um, uh, changed; they went tighter or looser. There was some concern as to what effect, if any, the the hollow structure of that tree would have. At the base, being 88 inches in diameter, it only had 12 inches of good wood all the way around. We have uh, <clears throat> a picture of the the last section laying horizontal on the bed of a truck and three of us are sitting inside the cavity. Wow. <laughs> it looked like an old one log load from the four, you know, right. from the lumberjack days of the of the, the giant redwoods.
0: So what was going through your mind while this tree's being removed after you've kind of described several potentially scary outcomes?
1: Well the fir- the uh the, the, the I'd say the moment of the highest drama was one of the cables was still tight after all of the weight had come down as far as it could go. And it happened to be a leader that was uh, closest to the house. And uh, Ryan Wilkins and Rob Springer were the two principal climbers. And Rob was close is older than Ryan and closer to retirement, so he said he'd be the one to cut that cable. <laughs> <laughs> And it was a seven-strand, extra-high-strength cable, very conventional, you know, steel insulation. And Rob decided to use a hacksaw instead of a bolt cutter so that he could cut a strand and tang, tang, (laughs) tang. And, uh, you know, figuratively, I think we all put our hands over our eyes when that last strand went. And there was no collapse. Also, the crane operator had uh, positioned the crane to take that. You know, if, if in case there was a collapse, it was going to be caught. But I'd say the you know probably the moment of the highest drama was the sound of that that tight cable. <laughs> you know, each strangling, going, ding, ding. Right. <laughs> the um, another moment of, of uh, you know sheer sheer delight uh, was the last pick which was the entire, uh, was an entire section of trunk. Since the tree was as hollow as it was, it was actually pretty easy to remove for the size of the tree because we only needed a, a bar that was less than um, 20 inches long. And I guess I should probably say why we took the tree down. That, that hasn't come up in any of the, the questions yet. The tree had died biologically of phytophthora, It had succumbed to phytophthora, And the interesting thing about that that made the diagnostic side of it really challenging was rhododendron is like the canary in a mine when it comes to susceptibility to phytophthora, And there was a big rhododendron bush right at the base of this tree that looked ratty, but it certainly didn't exhibit any signs or symptoms of phytophthora. We did extensive root crown excavations and inspections. In 1997, when I first came on board, I wanted to develop a baseline for the condition of this tree. We surveyed the tree from top to bottom, taking diameter measurements, trying to estimate how big the cavities were and that sort of thing. And there was absolutely no sign of uh, armillaria, phytophora, any kind of root rot or decay. And there never was. Right up until the time that, uh, right up to the time and including when the tree shut down biologically. All of the Phytophthora was out at the hair root end of the tree. It was out at the hair roots. And we did uh, soil tests. Bartlett Lab took a lot of samples and I I probably sent, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I probably sent a yard of soil to uh, South Dakota State University for Dr. John Ball's gas chromatograph to check. And he was looking for things other than uh, Phytophora in case there was something other than Phytophora. Bartlett confirmed Phytophora, so John picked up coal dust, you know, a part per billion or something like that. And he picked up uh, traces of atrazine, which is an herbicide, which, again, was a, an incredible mystery because none of the staff at Monticello use... It's an entirely organic operation, and they don't use any kind of herbicide. And, you know, we're pretty w- well able to rule out any kind of vandalism. So that's one of those things. We don't know how it got there or where it came from, whether it blew in from, you know, a farm you know, it had just put atrazine down along uh, far away. We don't know, but it was absolutely definite that the tree had succumbed to phytophthora. And the last diagnostic look that we, that we gave that tree, Alan Jones from Bartlett, Peter Hatch, the director of grounds and myself, in uh, late spring, we looked the tree over and said that, you know, it isn't going to come out of this dormancy. Well, it will, it'll struggle out of dormancy. But Alan predicted that it would uh, wilt, uniformly wilt, in the first hot week of summer. And sure enough, it did. And I want to give anybody that's dealing with a risk assessment or should we take a tree down, once it's absolutely clear that there's no way to bring that tree back, leaving it in the landscape. Putting it off, prolonging the agony, it's the worst thing you can do. The longer a dead tree stands and is allowed to deteriorate, the more dangerous that tree can become for the people that have to do the work. And uh, Monticello was was aware of that, and since this was at the end of June, they were also aware of the fact that uh, uh, then-President Bush was going to naturalize 400 citizens, on the back lawn of Monticello, and to have a, a dead tree there uh, was probably not a desirable thing. Right. So they, they decided to let's get it down uh, within days of <laughs> the 4th of July.
0: <laughs> Somehow politics always works its way into tree loops. <clears throat> well, it, it,
1: you know, as much as people in our profession revere trees, I've never had one write me a check. It always involves a person. And interpersonal skills are very important in being a successful arborist.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Speaking of that, because uh, I've removed some important trees, nothing nearly to the scale of this, uh, and had to deal with protesters. Did you have any of that while you were r- removing the tree?
1: That's a very good question. and I- I've been asked that a number of times. Uh, no, uh, but there were guards at the gate. <laughs> oh, that was my mistake. I didn't hire the right person. Well, it's a long, winding driveway up a very steep hill to get to uh, the, the house itself. And they had, they had a little extra security, because there had been a good bit of publicity about the loss of this tree. It's the only tree that I know of that actually had a televised uh, press conference prior to its removal. We had the crane lined up, everything ready to go, with that and with that in the background Dan Jordan the the uh, director of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation uh, was the first uh, man to uh, explain why we were where we were and uh, how it had come to pass that it needed to be removed and Peter Hatch the the, uh, the director of grounds uh, was asked uh, you know his take on it and I was interviewed and I was asked is it an original tree and I said, It isn't, but does it really matter? This tree on its own has become an icon in the landscape. It is in all of the aerial view postcards of Monticello. It's in all of the books of what we call the nickel view of Monticello. It's just a magnificent tree anywhere you were to put it. So I said, I, I, I feel that that tree has earned its place in history regardless of how it came to be.
0: And you know, speaking of another really important tree like that that earned its place on on the back of a coin, the uh, Y-Oak, it was maybe 2002, somewhere in that time frame that it was lost in a storm. And um, that tree, they used the wood to make a lot of commemorative pieces. Is that the same thing? uh, Do you know if they're working on that? I do. I think it's the same man. Same man.
1: There's a fellow that, that has a business of of acquiring historic woods, he will buy the wood in its raw form and then uh, make pens and turn little, you know, wine glasses out of wood. And I facetiously say, you know, since it's the only supply of Monticello wood or white oak wood, as the supply gets smaller, they go from uh, pens to to uh, toothpicks. You know, they're going to make this last as long as possible but yes and there have already been uh some pens made i think the most interesting use of the y oak was a uh, a project to support the restoration of the chesapeake bay there was a wooden box dovetail joints made out of wood from the y oak there was a certificate of authenticity made from parchment, uh, well, parchment's made from wood uh, fiber from the Y-Oak. And there was an oyster knife, and the handle was made of wood from the Y-Oak, and a blacksmith had hand forged the, the blade. And there was a minimum, there was a, a thousand of those made. And they were uh, sold out within three weeks.
0: Well, based on... Uh um, your title here uh, and the importance of this tree. I'm sure that whatever they make will be very popular. It will be very popular. People. Let me ask you. This is um, you know it's a really interesting story. Some people are going to want to learn more. Is there some place where they can go to uh, uh, to find out more than what they can get here from the podcast?
1: There is online uh, at uh, the tree, TCI magazine in the November. 2008 issue has a very detailed article about the history of this job, and they can, uh, they can access that online from anywhere in the world. Um, You'd probably want to go to Google and then to TCI Magazine, and then once you got there, you could go to the archives. If anybody wants to write me about any aspect of that, they can, they can write me at Quirkusman. Man. At aol.com, and if you if you can't spell Quercus, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. But it's q u e r c u s m a n dot aol.com, and I hope to hear from some people out there in
0: podcast land. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for being here. i got to let you go because you got 22,000 emails to respond to <laughs> now. So, uh, but, uh, but thanks for your time, for, for telling us about this interesting story, and, and just uh, I encourage everyone to, um, to come back and hear a, another exciting and informative interview in our Arbor Pod interview series. Thank you very much, Todd.